Pastor Ching has announced a couple Sundays ago this theme of the first quarter is brown eye to God, something like that, right? Yeah. And uh, so I was trying to look in the hymnal, see what kind of songs we could sing so we could stay with that theme. And, and it's amazing that so almost every song you can sing is associated with drawing eye to God. Because what happens when you draw eye to God? Draw eye to God, you have comfort, you got protection, you got victory. And I mean, just that's what all this. So I picked some songs, and some of the songs that we'll be singing will actually have the phrase draw eye. Some will not, but you'll sing about what. What is it that we get when we are near God? Okay. <clears throat> so 380, 389, they're saying, I am resolved no longer to linger. Yeah, let's dance and think. Oh, 
sing in album number 402. 402. A few pages over. Faith is the victory.
ourselves, our hearts, Lord, to you. Attention, Lord, and help us, Lord, to learn something from your word this morning. Meet the needs of our hair, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's sing one more song, uh, number 269. 269. <laughs> Okay, we're kind of 
thing today. People are out, people are sick, people are locked out of their houses and so on like that. So, uh, yeah, we're glad to see you in church today. Um, Hilda's over in the Philippines. She left today. Uh, funeral for her grandmother. And so keep her in prayer for safe travels. That uh, everything will find as much as possible over in the Philippines. All right, some folk are out to see. Uh, and some people got beauty today. So I'm glad to see you in church. Getting over the hangover. Uh, what I mean was, uh, what I mean is, what I mean is um, getting up early in the morning and then feeling drug, drugged out. And that's what I mean. I, I should change the subject. <laughs> James chapter 4. I'm getting myself in deep kimchi here. James chapter 4. The theme verse for the year, it's more than just a quarter, but it's for the year, and um, I'm sure we'll forget about it by June, but at least I want to emphasize emphasize this verse. James 4, verse number 8. We'll read it together, and so would you find it? And we'll read it together. James chapter 4, and verse number 8. James 4, 8. All right, James, for it, let's read it out loud together. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, verse 8, the first part, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. That's the theme verse. I'm going to talk about that this morning. And so the order is to draw nigh to God. It's an order. It's a command. It's something that you are mandated. Draw nigh to God. Now, the question you might have is, who is he talking to? To whom is this order to draw nigh to God? Well, in verse number 1 of chapter 1 of James, he tells you who this is for. Verse number 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. So that's who this order is for, the twelve tribes. Now, uh, some people have said that there's twelve missing tribes of Israel and some of them scattered across Europe and so on. And there are certain kinds of people. But God knows who these 12 tribes are. God knows where they are. So they're not missing at all. And he writes to them and says to them, one of the things he says to them is, draw nigh to God. So that is the order who it is for. It is for God's people, the Jews, to draw nigh to God. It's also for any Christian to draw nigh to God. We would say that in James you have Christians here, Christian Jews. But we would also say by, by application to the entire New Testament, that this is a statement that's good for all Christians as well. So the Christian is to draw nigh to God. God's people is to draw nigh and get close to Christ. God's people is to get close to Christ. Now, when I think about that, I think about uh, a piano. I think about a musical instrument. I think about a tuning fork. I think about something to help tune an instrument. Now, every instrument gets out of tune every once in a while, except an electronic one. Is that correct? Electronic instrument does not get out of tune. This piano does not get out of tune. Is that right? No, that piano the piano does not, but a regular piano would. When you move it, it's got to get retuned. When you set it, instruments get out of tune. I just heard today that Francis bought a little tuning thing for the guitar so that Joseph or Sammy can tune his own guitar. Now, instruments get out of tune. Out of tune means that it is not where it should be. Out of tune means there's a certain way it's supposed to sound on the guitar. If it doesn't sound like that, it probably needs to be retuned by the piano or by some tuning device. So for the piano, it's a tuning fork. 
whenever Christian has her piano tune, which is not that often, but when it happens, uh, the guys to come over, a professional to come over, he has to sit there, open up the thing, and uh, each key to the tuning fork or something, and he calibrates the, the key to the tuning fork. And so every once in a while, the Christian is like that. We are like a guitar, we're like a piano, we're like a musical instrument that has to be tuned. And so he says here, uh, draw nigh to God. So every Christian needs to draw nigh to God, get close to God. Every Christian needs to work in that direction. And so when we're out of tune, just like a piano, when it's out of tune, you can tell. When the guitar is out of tune, can you tell? When someone's singing out of tune, can you tell? Oh, can you tell? <laughs> uh, I like to sing with my wife, but sometimes she looks at me and she rolls her eyes like, uh, that's, you're off. Uh, that's why I don't sing to her too much, with her too much, because she, she can't help but roll her eyes at me. Like, <laughs> and I don't want to embarrass her or myself, so I don't sing with her anymore. That is that scenario. But uh, when something's out of tune, you can tell, can't you? Yes? When your car is not running right, maybe it's out of tune. Back in the old days when you'd have computers on cars, like a Volkswagen, you can tell when the car's out of tune because it, it just sounds different, sounds funny. Mechanics can tell when a car's out of tune, when the engine's misfiring, something's going wrong with it. They can tell, they can hear. Yeah, it doesn't sound right. It's the tappets, uh-huh, yeah, it doesn't sound right. They can tell. When something's out of tune, you can tell. Did you know that we often say, that when a lost man is out of tune, he's very wicked, he's very bad, and that be true. When a, when a man is not right with God, his life shows it. You can tell he's out of tune. Um, but do you know that in the book of James, he writes some things about people who are out of tune and they're not unsaved people, they're Christians. Let's look at these verses, and the point is this. When you're out of tune, you can tell. You can hear it. When an orchestra is playing and something's out of tune, oh, it doesn't sound good. When an orchestra is tuning up for the performance, it sounds it sounds ugly. It sounds like uh, Chinese music. It's just whiny and it doesn't sound good. But when everything is how it's supposed to be instrumentally, and when the conductor taps it and does his whatever, and then when you start to play, you say, oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's so good. It is so good because the instruments are in tune. And when you're in tune, you are a blessing. When you're not in tune, you are you. Ugh, ugh. You can tell when you're out of tune, all right? Let's go there. Let's go to the book of James, chapter 3. Now, I am saying to you that when you're out of tune, when you're not close to God, you can tell. James, chapter 3. And these are saved people that are out of tune. Remember that. James 3, verse number 5. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The first thing about someone out of tune is that their tongue is out of tune. Their mouth is bad. Look at verse number eight. Three eight. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Now he just talks about the tongue in verse number five and six and seven. It's like a fire. He says, every kind of beast, verse number seven, and of birds and of serpents, uh, and of things of the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, which is very true. Verse 8, but the tongue can no man tame. So you see, when a man is out of tune, when a Christian is out of tune, it shows up in his words. You can tell when he's out of tune. Look at verse number uh, 9. Therewith bless me God, even the Father, and therewith curse me man, men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeded blessing and cursing. 
Then he rebukes you by saying, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. We sometimes say, you ought not to do that. They ought not to do that. You shouldn't do that. This is like saying what James says here, verse number uh, 11. Doth the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, and he goes on about these life illustrations from nature, and then come down to verse number 14. You can tell when something's out of tune. You can tell when a Christian's out of tune. Verse 14. But if ye have bitter envies and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not, one, uh, lie not against the truth. Verse 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, see, you can tell when someone's out of tune. There is confusion in every evil work. Now, I'm making the point, I'm telling you that the Bible says that when someone's not right with God, not close to God, you can tell it's like an instrument being out of tune. Now look at chapter 4. Preceding verse number 8, look at chapter 4 of James. Verse number 1. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Now this verse is often used among countries about where war comes from, the origination of war. But this is personal. Come they not hence. Where do wars come from? Among you. Where do fightings come from? Among you. This is personal. Come they not hence. Even of your lusts that war in your members. Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war and yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask not and ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of this world or the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Uh, do do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but it giveth more grace. Now you have here the marks, the outworkings, the expression of what's in the heart that's not close to God. It's out of tune. Chapter five, chapter five of James, verse number one. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and so on. Now, this is about this is about a man whose life, his self-reliance is on what he has and what he is. He is not depending on God for anything. He's depending upon himself. Look at verse number 9. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Grudge not one against So these are the marks of an instrument out of tune. You're that instrument. You're likened to a vessel in the New Testament, are you not? Yeah, you are. And so you are out of tune when these things are manifest in your life. Uh, holding grudges, self-reliance, strife, pride, carnality, uh, bitter endings, your mouth. You have a bad mouth, you get a bad tongue. It's all coming from a bad relationship with God. So that's why he says in James chapter 4, verse number 8, draw nigh to God. When you draw nigh to God, these things ought not to be there. And they normally would not be there. But it's there because someone's not close to God. Hence, who should draw nigh to God? <coughs> oh, for sure. The believer should draw nigh to God because these things show that he needs to be close to God. The lost man is guilty of some of these things for sure. But the Christian also is guilty of these things. And that's where it's really bad. 
The testimony of a Christian is not effective. The testimony of a Christian is inconsistent. The testimony of a Christian is, yeah, right, yeah, you say you're Christian, but look at how you talk. Look at how you live. It's not consistent. And so the lost sin is guilty, yes, but the Christian, like a guitar, like an instrument, out of tune, needs to get back in tune. The tuning fork is the Word of God. We need to get adjusted back to, be calibrated back to what the Bible says we ought to be because we tend to get un tuned in this life is that true it happens so gradually it happens so quickly that you and i get on now a piano can sit in a house in a room for months and months and months and and then somehow it just gets out of tune or if you move it from one place to the next place you gotta retune it again if it's an old kind of old kind of piano it just happens like that and so you need a piano tuner uh the bible's the piano tuner and we can say god's the piano tuner we would say more accurately i would say more accurately that you and I, Christians, need to be retuned by the Word of God and by Jesus Christ. We need to get close to God. We need to make an effort to get close to Christ. That's the theme. That's the most important thing for the Christian life. It is not It is not going to church. That's the most important thing. It's important. It is not giving. It's important. Not the most important thing. It is not witnessing. Not the most important thing, but important. The most important thing for the Christian is for you to get close to God, because it's a relationship. Now, when you take the human relationship between friends, between husband and wife, you notice that if they are in tune with each other, they are closer to each other. But if they're not, they're not as close as they ought to be. They might be sitting next to each other. They might be living in the same house, but they're not close to each other. Somebody's out of tune. It could be both of them. But something's out of tune. It needs to get retuned again. Now, there's good news for all of this because there's, and, and, and a lot of part of the message is, well, I won't tell you because I want to keep you in suspense. But the first part is we need to get in tune with God. We need to be close to Him. And when we're not, it shows. It's very evident. All right? So getting in tune with God is what is needed. It's just natural to be in tune with God. You ever see two finches? Now, at our house, we have this little ledge in the window because it flips open like that. And every morning, birds come on that little ledge as if they can, as if they are people that just have the right to go anywhere they want to and just land where they want to, mess it up, and just stay there anytime they want to. And then they'll flop into the little holes on the side of the, the, of the roof line of the house. And if there's no screen there, they'll come inside with straw and branches and things. They'll make house in the house. Who do these birds think they are? They're like homeless people. Can't be anywhere they want to without any regard to blocking access. And I see some of them putting their whole their whole life there in the park on the, on the bench of the bus stop. Then everywhere on the sidewalk. On the why not go somewhere where you're not seen, where you don't bother anybody? Why must you go where everybody can see you? That's a pet peeve of mine. That and cats. <laughs> so I'm gonna get off of that before I get. The daggers are coming out, and they are effective, and I feel the pain. I feel the pain right over here, right over here. So uh, what does I say now? Oh, yes, uh, birds, the finches. One finch will land on the ledge of the window. Before you know, another finch lands right there. And watch this. One finch flies up here, and they're cute. Another finch comes over here. But they don't stay there. The finch scoots over this way. This one scoots over this way. And pretty soon they're rubbing against each other. And if they move around, they go like, like together, and then they go together. That's what finches, they're in pairs. 
They like the comfort of another fence. They are designed to be close to each other. You know how God designed you and me as Christians? To be close to him. And so it is his plan and his desire for you to be close to him. You're like a fence, a big fence, a bigger fence. And so Isaiah says this, wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. That's Isaiah 29, 13. That verse is saying that his people say they love God, but their actions so otherwise. They pray to God, but the heart is far from him. Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart, the most important organ from man and a woman, the most important part of a, a, a Christian is the heart. Their heart is far from me. Isaiah 29, 30. That's a very convicting verse because the verse is explaining and it's self-explanatory that in, even in Jesus' time, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were so religious on the outside, but their heart was so dark. On the outside, they looked so holy and so righteous and they would go to the street corners and when they go to the marketplace, people would take notice about them because of their robes and their apparel and how they looked and how they prayed. And they would say, shh, the holy man is here. We need to be quiet and not, not chatter because they're praying. Listen to their eloquence of their prayers. Oh, they're so close to God. And the Pharisees would go like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got that right. And all the time, Jesus is saying, you're white sepulchers, you're serpents, you're snakes, you're hypocrites. You're, the ch you're not right with me. You say the right things, but you don't really, it's not there. And so they need to, they need to draw close to God because if they're not saved, they need to get saved. But if they are saved, they need to get close to God. So the danger here is the, for, the performance of Christian living, the performance of service, but the heart is not there. Some people are so busy serving God, they have no time to be close to God, which is like an oxymoron. You would think that if a person is close to God, he'd want to serve God, and a lot of times that's true. But a lot of people, they get involved in the activity of, of the Christian thing, the church thing, uh, and yet their heart is so far from God. They're not close to God, but they seem to be because of their activity. That is something to be concerning about and concerned about because according to Isaiah, according to Isaiah, they say the right things, but their heart is far. It's a dangerous thing, so be cautious about that. All right, now, Christians have neglected their personal walk with God, which is, it happens very easy. Going back to the musical instrument analogy, an instrument, the musician never wants his instrument to go out of tune, but it just happens by use or by inactivity. It just happens like that. The strings are subject to temperature, to moisture, to humidity, all these kind of things. Being out in the sun, the backseat of the car, or being too cold, you get all kind of things happen to an instrument. And so you don't deliberately try to make an instrument go out of tune, but it goes out of tune. A Christian, likewise, doesn't try to be out of tune, but he goes out of tune. He doesn't try to be out of whack, but he goes out of whack. He doesn't try to go out to left field, but he begins on a path that takes him out to left field. Pretty soon he's way out there in left field. It happens so suddenly. You just got to be alert and cautious about these things. And so uh, we can get out of tune.
Now, that's the bad part, and that's the that's the admonition is to draw close to God. So who, who needs to draw close to God? God's people do. Of all people, the Christian does. Now, we hold people who, uh, expectations upon people who we think, let me, let me rephrase that. There's a, if you say you're a Christian, there's an expectation upon you because you're a Christian. Now, if a person says he's a Christian, he is obligated to live up to the name Christian. And Paul talks about, and John talks about this, John talks about walk as he walked. The word walk means live, live as he lived. So mimic Christ, follow Christ in his footsteps. Um, and Paul talks about your walk, your walk. Don't walk as the Gentiles walk, but walk as if you're in the light. And so the obligation is once you say you're a Christian, and if you are, and once you declare yourself to be a Christian, I mean to yourself primarily, and if you are a Christian by experience, by being born again, then it is your obligation to then try to grow and live like Christ would have you to live, which is defining the Bible. So you want to be like Christ in your behavior. And all the things that James rails on about and pounds people for and criticizes them justly for and condemns them for and, and rebukes them for justly, he says the opposite should be true. So if the tongue is cursing people, then that tongue should be used now to bless God and, and use it in the right way. And if it's, if it's grudging, he says, okay, now that grudging stuff's got to go. That grudging's got to go. Instead, something else has to replace it, see? And so as you grow, you're growing in your relationship to God, to Christ. That's what the life of a Christian is about. It's not about achieving a certain status, of, achieving a certain status of, of service or, no, no, all of that may come, but that's not the focus and that's not the purpose of being a growing Christian. The purpose of being a growing Christian is so that you become closer to God. Isn't that the purpose of marriage? Besides having someone to do dishes for you and cook for you and laundry for you and all those kind of things. I mean, that's a part of life, right? Why else would you get married to a woman? Why else would a woman get married to a man? Because so that she can, you know, go to Macy's or Neiman Marcus and uh, whatever. Cruises to Alaska and... Uh, McDonald's and Taco Bell, things like that. I mean, what else is the reason for people getting married to each other? Well, of course, it all is supposed to be so that you get closer to each other. And isn't it funny how after a while you get married to someone for a long time, they even talk the same? They even seem to look the same, but they're not the same. And they seem to think the same. They can almost read each other's mind. Now, after 10 years, you begin to notice that. The first five years, you don't even notice these things. You're independent in your thinking and your behavior and everything. But after 20, 30 years, you begin to walk the same. Like if you walk like a duck, he walks like a duck too. And I mean, the way they sway, the, the way they, I mean, it's like, it's eerie. It's like the two have become one in many ways. Now, uh, people look at Miranda's picture and... Um, when she smiles, people say, oh, is she Chinese? No, she's not so fortunate to be Chinese. <laughs> but when she smiles, she's got Chinese eyes. And it's kind of funny how she'll say, I was just about to say that. I'll say so, she'll, you know, and it's funny how we think alike. And uh, it's funny how we can anticipate certain things. It's weird. But that's what happens when you get to live with someone for a long time and you get to know them and you almost are like, one, it's kind of eerie, but it's meant to be that way where you are 
closer to each other and not strangers anymore. And so sometimes I'll get mad because I'll say, well, you should have known that about what I would think. You should have, you know, it's because I expect her to know what I think about things. Like, you know, she's like a secretary. She's supposed to know what I want, what I don't want. She's supposed to be, you know, and, but it doesn't happen like that. So I get upset because I'm thinking you should know better. And then she'll say, she'll come up to the kitchen table and I'll take off my shoes, walk upstairs, put my socks on the kitchen table, dining room table. I used to do that when I was a young married guy. I thought I got over that habit. It's still in me. <laughs> I put it over there oh, and I sit down, I sit down, take off my shoes, take off my socks, put it right over there. I intend to move it. I intend to move it. I intend to move it, but then before I can move it, she'll catch me with the sock and she'll say, what is that? And I felt like saying, you don't know what that is? <laughs> Those are socks. What kind of education do you have anyway? Those are socks. And she'll go like this. And you know, in a joking way, and I'll say, I'm gonna move it, because I'm afraid of her. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's, it's hilarious, but um, we know, I know what she likes, and she knows, she knows what I like. We like certain things, we don't like certain things. I can almost, I can almost say, oh, she would like that. And she would say, oh, she, I have a hard time buying her present. I always do, so I end up not buying her anything. <laughs> <laughs> and she knows that. And so I always, I always make up for that by saying, okay, I'll send you to Texas, see him, I'll send you to your mom to get to see her. Okay, so that's my all-in-one Christmas present, anniversary, the whole thing, all in one. So that's what I do. She knows that. And so, um, and I know she likes cards though. So if I ever give her a card, if I broke down and spent $5 on a Hallmark card, that's a lot of money for a card. And so, uh, but she, it'll make her day. I know that. I know that. And uh, she knows what I like. So she'll give me some stuff that I, know I like because she knows that. But I have a real hard time doing stuff for her. But she has a real easy time doing stuff for me because that's the way she's wired. So the idea of getting married to someone is for a lifetime and it's the, for the purpose of getting to get real close to that person so you almost become one. And if that's true for the human experience, would that not be true for the spiritual experience between you and God too, to get close to Him? So with each passing year, you're supposed to grow closer and closer. With, with, with each anniversary of your marriage, uh, you should be growing closer and closer. But spiritually speaking too, with each passing year of your spiritual anniversary, you should be coming closer and closer to God too. It's not spooky, it's normal. It's not weird, it's supposed to be that way. You are supposed to know Christ better, not just intellectually, not just knowing truth, not just knowing doctrine, not just knowing prophecy. It's supposed to be more than that. It all is to focus and somehow channel you to your relationship to God because of what you learn. If you only learn, and that's, the only reason why you learn or you're satisfied intellectually, if that's all you're getting, okay, you get it really smart in the Bible, you get really uh, well-versed in the Scriptures, but what is the purpose of being well-versed in Scripture? What is the purpose? There has to be a purpose for that. And so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, I suggest to you, the purpose of that is to draw closer to God. Where you stand in awe at his word because you're now standing in awe of the God of the Bible who wrote the word. And you're, sometimes when you think about creation, you're, you're amazed at how everything just works together like it's supposed to. And it's like, who could have planned all this out in the animal kingdom, in the natural world? Who could have figured all these things out? Well, 
And then you realize, ah, oh, the God who saved me is the one who did all of this. And that, that caused you to respond to God because of what you know. So not just having all the facts in your head that makes you spiritual. You can be very intelligent and be, be very unspiritual. There are people that I know personally and people that I know from a distance and second hand, third hand, that are really, really intelligent, but they're really, really evil. Which is like, what? That is an oxymoron. How can you be really spiritual, uh, well-versed in the Bible and be, be carnal? And, and Well, because in the Bible, in James alone, and in the Corinthian church, you have people uh, who were, uh, well, Corinthians, forget them, but in James, you have people who know the Bible, but then they're still acting contrary to the Bible. So it is, it happens. So the way to have that reversed is to, to know the Bible, but know the God of the Bible. That's getting close to him. All right, so here we go. Uh, who is to draw nigh to God? Say people. The second thing I want to tell you today is there is a promise from God. Go back to James. There is a promise here that's a really good promise. We draw close to God because he wants you close to him. Verse number eight, draw nigh to God and watch what happens. And he will draw nigh to you. Draw nigh to, get close to him and he will get close to you. Isn't that funny how that works? The promise of God is he will draw nigh to you. That's very gracious. After what James describes these Christians are like, he still gives an offer. Look, you guys, in spite of what you guys are like, you draw nigh to him. And in response, he would draw nigh to you. I would think he would say, well, he does say, cleanse your hands, you sinners. So there's a repentance there. There's an admission of sin there. And all that is a part of the equation. But the fact that God welcomes a, a wayward Christian back into fellowship with him is pretty awesome. It is pretty graceful for him to receive a wayward son or daughter in Christ. And so... Uh, wow, that's pretty interesting. That's pretty That's pretty encouraging. He will draw nigh to you. That's pretty gracious. Uh, we mere mortals who sin quite a bit and are all so prone to stray from his presence and from his side like sheep, uh, still he says, I will draw nigh to you. That's pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty supernatural. That's pretty God-like to be graceful like that. Listen to a couple of verses here. Listen to these verses. Psalm 145, verse number 18. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. So the verse says, God is right there. He's close. If you call upon him, he's not. He's close to you. You want to get close to him? Go ahead, because he's right there. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Here are two good verses here. Isaiah 55, 6 and verse 7. Seek ye the Lord. Mm, draw nigh to him. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. There's almost a ominous tone there to that verse, verse, uh, verse number six. While he may be found, while he is near, implying that there comes a time when he's not close and there comes a time when he will not hear you. That seems to be what that underlying tone is there. And that is true. That would be true in the sense of you keep putting God off, you keep rejecting him. One day it's going to be too late. That's there. An unsaved man for sure who rejects Christ forever. And he says, well, tomorrow I'll get saved. He knows he needs to be saved, but then he rejects Christ. 
put him off until maybe perhaps one day he cannot think straight to receive Christ. That is there. Verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, he seems to flip the tone from verse 6 to verse 7. While he says at the beginning, Seek him while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Then it says, let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and he will abundantly pardon. That seems to be just the opposite. What's all this mean? Well, it just means this. God is very gracious and very merciful, and you just don't know when you would cross over that line in which you are of no return kind of kind of thing. But it sure seems to say that uh, you draw nigh to him, and he will draw nigh to you. That is clear, as the politicians say. Let me be clear. <laughs> Zechariah 1.3 says this Zechariah 1.3 Thus saith the Lord of hosts Turn ye unto me saith the Lord of hosts and I will turn unto you Turn ye unto me and I will turn unto you That's a pretty good reaffirming affirming supported verse of James 4.8 Come to me and I'll be right here waiting for you That's pretty good uh, <clears throat> Nathan the other day said I don't know what the context was but he said he's learned a lot about himself or the grace of God by how his children are and how he treats his children. Because kids kids all often goof up and they mess up. And the old, the old, why did you do that? Well, it's a silly question because he doesn't know why he did that. <laughs> Does the kid know why he rode his bike, um, uh, jump from building to building downtown Honolulu from one floor to the next floor on his third floor. Why did he do that? He didn't know why he did that. Crazy. Or why did he knock that over? Uh, drink the, he didn't do it on purpose. So why did he do that is not a good question. And then um, the response of a parent is like in anger or I can't believe he did that. Well, he did it. Believe it. He didn't knock that over. And the response is, oh, so frustrated, so upset because Last week, he did the very same thing, and now this week, he's doing it again. That happened three times this year, and now you're so upset with that boy, that girl. And you and, and he, was, he was trying to explain, but wait a minute. Have I not, more than three times a year, upset God, my father? <laughs> Have I not done that three times 30? And yet, he still says to me, let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, he will abundantly pardon. And so he was trying to explain, well, I need to respond as how God responds to me. My response to my kids is how I should respond uh, to how God responds to me, which is a fair, a fair assessment. It's pretty fair. Now, this is a little bit different from uh, people in your life, in an employee-employee situation. I'm not trying to pigeonhole them. I'm not trying to make exceptions, but I'm saying... Uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, your own family and things, you should have a lot of mercy and grace. And sometimes in a work context, there ought to be a place and a, and a way for you to get something fixed and get it right. Because it's a job now. It's not a relationship personal. It's a, it's a job thing where this guy's got this job to do. Do your job so I can do my job. You don't do your job, I can't do my job. And so there's a place for saying, hey, look, dummy, you need to get fired. Because you're not doing your job, I need to do my job. But you're hindering me. And so you go to your boss, supervisor, get that thing straight now. See, there's a time for that. There's a time for that.
So I'm not telling you, be so merciful, so graceful that you let people come to us and rob you without any defense. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying when someone does something wrong, you should not confront that person when necessary and when it's appropriate. I'm not saying that. So you got to have some sense about these things, all right? Not, not either or. But one thing is for sure, the Lord is ready to receive a child of His that hasn't been close to Him. Ah, whoa. Oh, for Bible principles, there's a Bible example. For Bible principles, there's a Bible example. Dad, I'm underage. I know that, but I know I got a lot of money, and I know you're saving up until 18, but um, I want it now. By the way, Dad, how much do I have? Well, son, I'm not going to tell you because you might want it now. Well, I want it now. Whatever it is, want it now. No, son, that's for later on. It's not for now. You're too young. Dad, I am 15. I know what I want. And my friends told me so. And so I, they're right because that's what I was thinking, and they confirm it. So it, it must be all true. Dad, I want all now. But son, and the, the father gives in. He takes off with everything. So let's modernize this, all right? So he uh, goes online, and he gets to... Uh, Google Travel or Expedia, and he buys him a ticket, one-way ticket to some exotic place that he thinks is great with nice pretty lights. He goes to Vegas and he finds the most expensive hotel he can find and stays. He, he plans to go there for just two weeks. So he goes there, MGM Grand, and then he goes there and spends all his money. He gets a chauffeur and limousine. And he's having a ball. He's having a good time. He's having the time of his life. This boy is just living it up. And you know that story where it comes from. Now, when he messed up, lost everything, he calls home. Calls home. Actually, he couldn't call home. His phone, his cell phone, he didn't pay for it. He got so carried away with his fun. He didn't pay his bill. And so they cut him off and said, no, but, and his friends, they, you know, they didn't let him borrow his phone, uh, their phone. So he had to go make a, from the hotel room. And so he says, uh, uh, the story goes like this. He's going to come crawling home. Now, he done totally wrong. His, his elder brother, ever at the father's side, never disobeyed, never did all those bad things, never was selfish, he's home. Now the boy who, who, who went off, he didn't run away, he went off, and now he messed up. He now realizes it, and you know, by the way, sometimes people, when they mess up, they don't get until it really hurts. They don't understand until it really, really cost them something. Then they see it, then the light goes off, boom. And this boy, the light went off in his head. He realized how good he had it at home. He realized how, how blessed he was to have a good father. And all that he had, he realizes, you know what? I'm just an idiot, selfish idiot. I wanted more, but what I really had was at home already. I didn't need any more. What a stupid, you know, and he, whatever he blamed, blamed the internet, blamed YouTube, blamed X, blame, whatever he blamed, it got a hold of him and he, he lived it out and he got what he wanted. But then the Bible talks about in Corinthians about you the, the cup that you drink at first is it's got to ask and the later one is, is sweet and the other one it sounds it tastes sweet but at the bottom it's got an asp in it. You know, so in other words, it's so good at the beginning but in the end, uh, and the other one, oh, but then, oh, this is really good. So he realized the lesson. He learned the lesson, didn't he? And so when he came home, he came crawling back home, and the boy did say to himself, 
I'm no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And he told his father, I'm not worthy to be called a son, but I'm going to go home anyway. And when he came home, you know what the father did? You know what the father did, right? What did the father do? The father did what the verses say here. Abundantly pardon, have mercy upon him. That's what happened. And the boy came home. Now, what would you have done if that was your son or daughter or your friend who, or your business partner who cheated on you and um, stole money from the bank account or the business? All of a sudden, you're broke. What would you do if he crawled back in repentance? What would you do? Most people say, lock him up. That'd be the American way. <laughs> that might be the right thing to do in some cases because that person would never learn, perhaps. But what would you do if that was your son or daughter? Well, this man expressed the grace of God and let him come back home and even had a party for him. All right, so this is the promise of God. Draw nigh to God, he would draw nigh unto you. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he will for for he hath torn, Hosea 6, 1, he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and he will bind up. So sometimes after hardship and suffering and pain, then the boy's ready to come back home. Psalm 73, number 28 says this. One more verse. Psalm 73, 28. But it is good for me to draw nigh to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. And so the goal of the purpose, the goal and purpose of the Christian life is to draw close to God and God wants to draw close to us. That's the amazing thing and that is the true thing. It's a two-way relationship. It's a true relationship. Did not Jesus say to Peter, do you love me? Why? Did Peter say, do you love me? Ask Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three times. Why? Because he wanted to have a relationship with Peter. He didn't want Peter just to serve him out of mechanical duty, out of a title, an apostle. No. He wanted to have a heart to serve him, a relationship with him, draw close to him. And did not Jesus say in John 15, abide in me? What's that all about? That's about he wants Christians to be close to him. Again, like the marriage couple relationship, normal to be close to each other even more so. Now, here's how you can get close to God, how you can get close to Christ. I told you about who needs to get close to Christ and, and how he promises to welcome you, to receive you, to be closer to you. And uh, he responds to you when you respond to him. So here's how you get close to Christ. I'll give you a couple of verses here. Psalm 86, verse number three. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. I'll look at that verse that crying to God daily would be praying to him daily. So to be close to God, you must have time each day to pray to him. Now it could be uh, set time. It could be on the go time. But probably if you make set, a set time, likely you'll go on the, on the go time praying too. So crying unto him is praying unto him. And so to make time for him each day is to get close to God. All right. When you're talking with, with the Lord, and like when you talk to other people, you have fellowship with them, you have 